Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the New Life Church Rewind Podcast. My name is Michael and I'm here with Pastor David Sangster. Hey everybody. And we are in week five of our series called Life of David. And Pastor Dave, what was the name of this week's sermon that we're rewinding today? A Honorable Heart. An Honorable Heart. Mm. And so we're moving quite rapidly through David's life. We're going to spend about six weeks, so we're almost done. But let me ask you right off the bat, is there anything you felt like you left out of this week's sermon? Because, you know, we're taking big chunks of David's mm-hmm. life and we're trying to to fit it into a six-week series the best we can. I think the story that we talked about this week regarding David's relationships with with Jonathan and Saul, uh, they actually... They actually move forward in his later life to his relationship with his kids. Uh, we see that David has a very precarious relationship with what would be the next generation of kings, his own mm-hmm. successors, and Absalom and, and some, uh, some of his own children. In fact, David, um, he doesn't really come across as a very good father in many ways. Uh, he has some very uh, interesting ways of, of dealing with his children. So. I would have loved to get into the the, the fatherhood p- portion sure. of David's life, but we just you know you have for a six week series you got to kind of put some things on the cutting room floor. But the the fatherhood aspect of David is not something to be emulated. It's something. It's more of a a cautionary tale, right? Something to learn from. Yeah, and it seems like just to tag onto that a bit that. In David's interpersonal relationship, sometimes he does behave like you would expect any old king in that mm-hmm. region to behave. That mm-hmm. really, after you're firstborn, the rest of your children are kind of <laughs> like your servants, your serfs. They're almost um, yeah, like jewelry or something. You don't they don't really serve a purpose in your life other than to have them. Yeah, and and even as a husband too, with with his multiple wives and concubines and things like that. You know, there's there's a lot to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's put it this way, a lot of drama. Yeah. So, let's Kardashian talk, type. Let's talk about another one of David's relationships. Okay. So, this week really centered on David's relationship with his best friend named Jonathan. And right. Jonathan was, I guess you'd call him the prince of Israel. He mm-hmm. was Saul's firstborn. And I remember a long time ago when I was first getting to know you, we had coffee and I was telling you how one thing I've always been blessed with, I had all these amazing male friendships that I had. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, you don't ever hear enough about Jonathan and David. Mm-hmm. And then you said something that just blew my mind. <laughs> you told me how a long time ago when you were in, in Bible college. It wasn't that long ago. Well, whatever. <laughs> long enough ago. I, yeah, right. <laughs> that um, there was like some people would talk under their breath that uh, Jonathan and David were let's put it this way, more than just friends. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe that reading the text because I, when I read that story, I was like, that's how I feel about my close male friends. Right. And so I'm just going to ask you straight out, for the record, were David and Jonathan gay? That's the the question around this story. And we, we just didn't deal with it on Sunday. I thought it would be a better uh, opportunity to deal with it here. Because that this is one of the major stories in Scripture that the LGBTQ community use to support 
uh, homosexual marriage in the, in our culture today? Because I'm just going to read you a couple of statements. Um, the Bible says, David states that Jonathan's love was, quote, more wonderful than the love of a woman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's 2 Samuel. Jonathan also loved David, mm-hmm. and he kissed him. Mm-hmm. The text even tells us that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And I, I guess in today's world, two guys talking about each other like that, this kind of reads to the modern person a little romantic. Yeah. And I, I think that's the problem. We'll, we'll just talk about that for a couple of seconds. But you have to remember that David and Jonathan, like we talked about last week, the Old Testament was written to a different culture than ours. Mm-hmm. And even cultures today in the Near East have have different uh, ways to men relate to one another. Sure. Like you find some people still hold hands in the near East. Men hold hands in the streets, things like yes. that. Um, greeting somebody with a kiss is not out of the question in many even European countries. Right. So anyway, uh, but here's some things to think about. In in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we see that David had multiple wives and concubines. I mean, he was obviously attracted towards women. Uh, he lusted, we talked about this last yeah. week, he lusted after a naked woman, uh, Bathsheba, to the point of committing adultery with her. Yeah, if David had any flaws, it seems as though he liked the women too, too much. much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then Jonathan was married too. He had a, he had a wife. Um, it doesn't really fit the narrative that David and Jonathan were attracted to each other, not, not in a sexual way. Um, right, and I want to tell the listeners we're not actually trying to make light out of this no this is something that is is, is, is it's currently being taught yeah. from some pulpits and some seminaries that this is um this is a way that we can try to read something we want in our culture mm-hmm. into the bible as opposed to right. reading it in its proper context yeah so in first samuel 18 where jonathan loved loved david i mean the hebrew on that for love is not the erotic love of of marriage uh, that word is translated uh, the erotic love of marriage is translated always yod yod yeah uh, or yod mm-hmm. uh, and then the love that is in this particular passage is ahib and that is a that's a a, a same sex respect and friendship type of love so even if you look at the, you look deeper into the, uh, the etymology of the words, you're going to see a non-sexual relationship here. And it just, you, there's other places where that comes, you know, into play. And I just think it's, I think it's really a stretch if you look at the text for what it is and not what you want it to be, to say that these two guys uh, had a sexual relationship. And it also, t- I think it really takes away from what the relationship actually was. Right. I mean, this is an amazing relationship that should be emulated by men, not, uh, you know, shunned. And I think that's done a lot of damage to men over the years because they don't even want to come near these verses because they don't want to, you know, associate with something that would be, you know, you know homosexual in nature. And, and that's a shame. So for the people who are reading this relationship as something as being more than just dear friends. Mm-hmm. Does that say something about our culture today that anyone could read this and think, oh yeah, these two guys, like they're definitely dating or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Like this is more than just friends. Or maybe they're closeted, but they really love each other like that. Right. Does that say something about us today? 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, we think about a Warshak test, revealing the inner thoughts rather than the objective truth, uh, truth right? Mm-hmm. This concept of we are, we're so uh, saturated with love being equated with sexual activity. I mean, love equals sex in our culture. And that's just a shame. Not long ago, this wasn't the case. I mean, I think uh, about some relationships that uh, were big, even in our own American history, that they were men could enjoy being with other men and strengthen one another and just have a really uh, strong bond without it having to overflow into this uh, kind of degraded discourse on sexuality. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. You also talked about in the sermon that um, you've had many memorable relationships in your life and in your ministry and how these kinds of relationships, like the one we see between Jonathan and David. So how have they helped you, like relationships like that? Would you like to talk about one that sticks out to you or one that's really helped you in your life, your ministry, uh, being a dad, et cetera? Yeah, I, I mentioned on Sunday that I've always been in pursuit of mentorship type relationships. Um, but that's something that you have to really go out and find. Um, a lot of times the best ones are ones that find you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you have a, a relationship with somebody as in your youth and you grow up with those people and, and you've done things together. You've uh, played sports together or you've, uh, for guys, you've, you know, I don't know how women connect. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a yeah. dude. So you, you connect yeah, over a, sure. a common thing, right? And uh, so one of the b- biggest mentors of my life and friends today at this time was my my youth pastor, okay. uh, Frank Canador. He's now lives in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. But we, even today, we, we will connect over the phone. And uh, he was just always there to sharpen. And so, you know, when you build these types of relationships – you have to make yourself vulnerable enough to be able to take criticism from these relationships. And yes. he was older than I was. He's my youth pastor. So, you know, he encouraged me. He challenged me. He was uh, one of my coaches. So he inspired me. And ultimately, he is the one who helped me down the path towards realizing my call to pastor. And uh, he's one. He, he's one that will always be on the top of my list of people who, uh, you know, when we had a, a tragedy in our, in our, our budding family, yeah, he was the first call. You know, he was the first call. Um, but re- more recently, I have a friends that I've uh, come into contact with uh, that work in the Southern New England Ministry Network. Mm-hmm. That man, they are just brothers in arms, you know, and if, if they need something, I'm there for them. If I need something, uh, they're there for me. And those are not even family. I mean, my greatest mentor of all time, obviously was, you know, I don't, I shouldn't say obviously, but was my dad. Okay. And, uh, his loss left quite a big vacuum. And, uh, yeah. And I, I enjoy our relationship, you and I, I mean, I, I feel like that's one of those relationships. Yeah. I'll I'll talk uh, briefly about it as far as my life in ministry. Um, you know, I say this with due respect, but we have this idea of like someone being a father to you in the faith and, um, your mentorship to me has been immense. And, you know, I guess we'll just say this on the internet. Now I'm very (laughs) grateful, uh, for, for everything that you've done for me and you, you've shown me 
And I'll say, we're going to talk a little bit about mentorship, I think, later on. But um, one quality from you that I appreciate was, I think you've always given me enough room to make my own mistakes. Mm -hmm. You're like, don't, I'll tell you about my mistakes. Kind of go out and make your own mistakes Mm -hmm. and you'll figure it out. And uh, one more briefly, I have a friend Mm -hmm. who, when I read about this, you know, relationship between Jonathan and David, someone who's not actually one of my brothers, Mm -hmm. but, you know, probably is just as close to me to any human being on this planet besides my wife. And um, so, Aaron, if if you're listening, that's my friend. I have a friend named Aaron and he's, Mm -hmm. I think you said like your first call first or call. whatever. Yeah. And I know that no judgment. Right. Um, you know, maybe down the line, he's never been afraid to correct me, but not right. in the moment. And I think some of us are blessed with those friendships and some of us are seeking them out. Mm-hmm. But that's really what we can learn from this story that um, to have a friend like Jonathan mm-hmm. is in some ways, something that can make you wealthy without actually having money in the bank. Right. And um, they're just so important. And I think I think it's one of those things that if you don't have it, it's so worth your while to pursue it because um, there's nothing can substitute somebody having your back. Someone, like we said on Sunday, somebody having your back somebody willing to sit with you and cry with you and somebody who's going to encourage you in your faith. And we see that this friendship between Jonathan and David, it doesn't just affect those two, right? Oh, it, it spills over into mm-hmm. the people around them. And and we read from the story that there's this character. Uh, so it's Jonathan's son, uh, right. Mephibosheth. Is that yeah, how you say it? And is that his firstborn or did we, do we get a sense of that from the text or, I don't know that I, it, it, it probably does say, but, but I can't tell you at the top. But of he's head. recognized as the, like heir, the heir apparent. The heir apparent. Yeah. So wherever wherever he lies there, and we see that David's love and respect for Jonathan mm-hmm. transcends even to the next generation. Right. And I wanted to ask you about that. Is David's respect in the, the kindness he shows Mephibosheth? If you mm-hmm. go back and listen to the sermon that kindness that he shows him, is that just out of respect for Jonathan, do you think? Or is that a little bit of David's, at times, noble character creeping in and David saying, like, I have so much respect for the office of king that because the way he treated Saul. Mm-hmm. Is that there too, or does he act that way just because of his love for Jonathan? Or do you think... I don't think there's any way to know for sure. I, the only one we know for sure is that he made a covenant with Jonathan, right? But if you go back to the times when, when David spared Saul's life, there was no reason to do that other than honor for the, uh, for the, the position of king, mm-hmm. f- for the, the crown, right? So he may be thinking like he did there, I need to set an example because one day I'm going to be dead and my kids are going to inherit the crown. And if I don't set a good example of treating the lineage well, then there could be problems for my own family down the road. Right. And maybe David has a little bit of that, we're going to do things different here. Right. These other kings and these other exactly. places, they're going to do that genocide thing. But here in Israel, right. we're special. We're going to be different. The least I can do is try to walk in that a little bit. And it and it's it's not a simple thing. I mean, the succession plan of kingship is pretty solid. So for him to be 
put in as king, to be anointed as king outside of the family, outside of the, the lineage of Saul, is a big deal. And this, if you went through, down a straight pagan practice of what you do, it would be to kill off the previous king's heirs. Mm-hmm. And David doesn't do this, and it does bite him later on. Mephibosheth actually does a campaign to get the king, to, to pull the kingship away from David later on in his life. And David still, even though he, uh, he does punish him, he still doesn't kill him. Uh, it's, it's an amazing story that David holds his hand. And I really do believe. Now, my, my thought is this. There would be no other, because re- he actually has a legitimate reason to now, because Mephibosheth has subverted him, right, to kill him. That's how much he loved Jonathan. He was willing to take the bumps and the bruises of, of this political intrigue because of his love for his friend. And I just can't help but think about this, what we talked about last week a bit. We already know David believes that he'll see his deceased son again. Right. He probably in the same way understands that he would like to see his friend Jonathan again right. someday. And what an awkward, uh, <laughs> what awkward meeting in heaven that may be when he said, I made this covenant with you and then yeah, once you were it. gone. And I, I just think that does uh, speak so much about their relationship. That's cool. And we talked a lot about isolation no. on Sunday. Yeah. So let's, let's spend a bit of time here on the podcast talking about isolation. So can you tell us a bit more about how as modern people we are more isolated than ever? Because it seems like a weird concept. We talked about it a bit, but yeah, how is that so? The interesting thing about it is that we're more connected than we ever have been for in history of the world through our technology and our media. Mm-hmm. Yet the feeling of isolation is at an all-time high. Um, I think especially we felt it during, during COVID. I mean, people were just, the suicide rates were intense because people were just so disconnected from real human relationships. The isolation that we feel now is not isolation of conversation or of uh, stimulation. It's an isolation of the real. That's my statement. It's an isolation of the real. We don't date normal anymore. Right. Instead of going somewhere and finding someone that you want to ask out, how do we do it? We look at pictures on a app right and we select like we would out of a catalog and then hope it works out it's just it's just not real it's not organic it's not authentic so it's it's hard for young people and i'm not saying that i have the answer for that all all uh, the whole way through i i think it's a really precarious time for young people especially who have been brought up under this culture and really don't know what the real was back then. This is real for them, but it's lacking a level of uh, flesh and blood and authenticity, and it's hard. And speaking of children, too, and young adults, and I, I mean, I, and I'll say this, like I'm 37. I felt like I was a child till about five years ago, yeah. right? So people 30 and under, information now travels so fast, mm-hmm. but it hits our brains at such a uh, speed and such a rapid pace that I don't think young people have had enough life experience to be able to start discerning it at the rate that they receive it. And it makes me wonder if that has something to do with this isolation too, that there's so many opinions, so many thoughts, so many sides to choose from, mm-hmm. so many products that 
it almost gives you like a tunnel vision. Oh, that, absolutely. That, that you, you can't see it all, so you only lock in and you focus. And I think that's isolating too, the speed of the technology that we have. And the way it's coming to you, it's coming, into, coming to you as an individual, not as a community. So how are you processing the information that's coming? You're not. You're just mulling it over in your own head. You're not bouncing it off of somebody. You're not getting other people's opinions. You're just getting what's coming to you, and you're having the entire burden of processing that information. And then because of, and I, again, I'm not anti-technology, but- We'll tech, get to that in a second. Yeah, but um, because of the algorithms that are in place, there tends to be this you know, echo chambers that get built. And then you start believing everybody believes this. Yeah. When it's not true because you're not actually talking to real people. You're just getting inundated with media and content. And I'll tell you a story. Just the other day, I was on vacation. Yeah. And I was with my in-laws, my wife. And so there's four of us in a room. And it was a rainy vacation day. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of stuck in the house. Now, we're all in the same room together. And then my mother-in-law says... Look at the typical American family. You're on your phone, you're on your phone, you're on your phone. So even though we're spending time together, we're actually still isolated because it wasn't like the old days where if we were all watching the same thing on television, even that, right. we could process it together. Right. But now- You're in a digital room. We're, yeah, we're, right. We're, we're almost in our own little, yeah, digital pod, even mm -hmm. though, and we're not actually spending time together. And then we laughed about it. Yeah. And then- we all put our phones down. Then we caught her on her phone and we teased her. But this, we're all guilty of it. This, this, um, even though we're connected, we're isolated. It's a very strange thing. I've said it, uh, you know, in sermons before. Lisa and I constantly uh, marvel at the fact that you'll have a whole family, and they go out to a nice restaurant, and they're paying money to sit around a table and eat food that they didn't prepare themselves, and they're all on their phones. On the so they're in separate rooms paying money to be around the same table not not real rooms digital rooms and so so what you said is very important you said you laughed about it and then you tried to that intentionality has got to be applied toward our digital culture so when we say to people you need to find a mentor it means you have to put the phone down Go get a cup of coffee with someone and have a real conversation. And it's not something that's natural to us, in especially the younger generation. It's something that has to be done intentionally. Right. And so just a bit about this technology. So this technology that we've created, this interconnectivity, that, mm -hmm. but it's isolating at the same time, is, is the technology a tool that we haven't figured out how to use properly? Mm -hmm. Like... Um, Someday, we'll laugh about the days when we thought the speed of information, the connectivity was a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. Or is it really just a Tower of Babel all over again? Mm -hmm. Like, it is a way for us to, we think if we master this technology, it's almost like this first step to telepathy and then the next step to being like gods. The yeah. information can be implanted in your brain. You're all knowing. Mm -hmm. Which one is it? Is it a little of both? I've tossed this around in my head. I'm starting to wonder if, you know, God needs to come down and take a look at what we're up to again and scatter us from this technology as much as I love it. Yeah. Because I'm a creature I think it's, of, I think of it's both. I think it could go both ways. I think, you know, think about thir 20 years ago. You would go into a restaurant and people would be smoking yep. all over the place. 
I even remember that, right? I could, it's not, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not that, not long, that, long, it's not ago. that long ago. But now, in America at least, I mean, there's no smoking sections. The, the, the irony of a smoking section, right? It's not even blocked off by any walls. It's just one over there, yeah. one over here. But there, you can't smoke in a restaurant anymore. And the warnings on that are, and you see somebody uh, smoking, you're thinking, oh, they have an addiction. That's the thought I have. Oh, it's, it's not something that we're like, oh, that's so cool anymore. That used to be yeah. the way it was thought. Movie stars would have a cigarette and it would be a, a sign of being cool or being sophisticated. Uh, just the other day, I saw a television show come on and it said, you know, rated whatever age for historical right. smoking. Yeah, yeah. That we don't even want kids to see a character they may like on TV smoking anymore because we've learned that. Habit- for you. At least habitual right. smoking is not good for you. So it, it could ego, either go one of two ways. We could just really double down on this technology and you know do the whole like implants. And but our, I, my hope is that we will, uh, because we don't have the data, we're the first generation. The, the, our kids really are the first generation to grow up with this type of interconnectivity. Right, right. They don't know a world they don't. without... Cell phones so they're guinea and high pigs. speed, right? They're guinea pigs, and it's unfortunate to say it that way, but they are. So hopefully, data will be will be gained. Mm-hmm. We're already seeing it that they're saying children who sit in front of screens for you know a certain amount of time of day, their brain function is actually suffering for it. So I think my hope is this: that we'll we'll, we'll wise up, we'll see it as a tool to be used, and uh, there, but there is a potential for it to be abused and hurt us. And then you'll have warnings like you do on a pack of cigarettes with phones and digital yeah, time. Could and you like imagine that. if you have to, when you open up Instagram, yeah. it asks you for your driver's license number or something because it wants to verify that you're not of the age where this could be dangerous for right. you. That, that could be the future. So we'll see. So why is isolation so dangerous for Christian people? I mean, all people, but particular Christian people. I think isolation is particularly, and I, okay, this is this is why we have the church. Jesus, God, in all of His wisdom, said, "You need an entity that is going to help you in this life because you have a huge target on your back. Mm-hmm. The enemy wants to take you out, and the best way to take you out is to remove your support. So I think amongst Christians." Because we are counter the culture of the prince of the power of the air, right? we tend to have more of a target on our back, and we can't do this alone. We are going to struggle. David had his worst moments in his history when he removed himself from his accountability structures. That's true. And and this is always um, the danger of any leader, anybody in power, right? because by nature of anything that's kind of shaped like a pyramid, a pyramid scheme or organizational chart or whatever, the higher up on it you get, the less things are next to you and the more isolated you become. It's lonely on the top. And so I want to read a verse and then we're going to talk about it for just a minute. First Peter 5 verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, if you've ever seen one of those nature documentaries mm-hmm. and they show the lion hunting its prey, the first thing it does typically is to isolate one from the pack. Right. And can we, is that really the image that we're supposed to get here? That 
our enemy literally wants to separate us so that it can eat us Yeah, I actually showed, uh, in dealing with this topic in a previous sermon series a while back, I showed a video of of a lion hunting wildebeest. And and it's interesting. The lion strategically tried to separate one of the weakest of the of the herd and get them away from the strong ones so that it would be an easier target. Now the cool thing about the video I showed is that it showed this herd of wildebeests pouring over a hill and like attacking the lion, but yeah. they wouldn't do that alone. They did it as a herd and they actually saved the weaker one. Uh, I think it was a, a youngling. Uh, mm. They saved it because they came at it as a, as a herd, not as individuals. So yes, absolutely. This, this, this is what first Peter is talking about. This concept of trying to isolate people, especially like I say, especially when they're down. One of the weirdest things that happens in church culture is that when somebody goes through a difficult time, they're depressed or they have a a life experience that is is rough, instead of coming to the church, they often isolate. And it's a constant battle from a pastoral standpoint to keep tabs on people who may have like kind of wandered away or 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 they're coming off the yeah. attendance list quite a bit it's, it's a red flag for us as pastors to say that person needs a call because something's going on there because isolation usually happens when you're at your weakest yeah. and that's where the enemy is at its most potent yeah and in human body language i don't i don't know about wildebeest but human body <laughs> human body language i don't know if wildebeest have body language but the human body language is you're going through something you're down you know the shoulders drop yeah the, the people's gaze drops to the floor. They look mm-hmm. down and away from people. Yeah. And that is the perfect time to be attacked by an ambush predator. Absolutely. When you're down and you're, you're, you're you know, you're just walking through life, looking at the floor and that's people's body language gets not just their, their everything about them kind of gets depressive and, and what a perfect opportunity for one of these ambush predators to, because that's really what the lion is. They, they're actually not as yeah. courageous as we make them out to be right. They, they do, they prowl, they stalk, and then they only exert energy for a brief amount of time, right. and it overwhelms you. But it's you. intense. But it's intense. I mean, that brings me back to the story of Cain and Abel. When Cain's sacrifice was not accepted by God, he got bitter, and he had a moment. And God came to him and said, Cain, why is your countenance fallen? Mm. He said, be careful, because... The enemy is crouching on your doorstep yes. to devour you. And that, that what you just said just brought that to my mind, this countenance falling, this, this vulnerable point where if you don't master it, and that's what he said to Cain, you must master it. And if you don't master it, but how do you do that on your own? And so this is where we see the mission of the church, right. that um, it's not just pastors and leaders Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. So this is kind of the last um, topic, and it ties right in. You said, have someone in your life to call out of you what God has already placed in you, Mm. or something like that. You got it. Maybe the direct quote. And so peak church culture, Mm -hmm. and so it seems is, if everyone in the church has a mentor Mm -hmm. and a, what would you call it, a mentee? Mentee. A mentee. Yep. If everyone has one. That's the peak flow. So if someone's pouring into you, you're then pouring into someone else. Mm-hmm. But if everyone has one of those relationships, 
when someone's countenance is low, mm. someone is going to notice. Yep, someone will notice. Someone will. Yeah. And that's when we can come around each other as the body of Christ and say, you know, we say not today, Satan, not today, lion. Right. You're not ambushing one of our own today. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And that, what I would call that right there, Michael, is church. Right. Church is not a 15, 20-minute, half-an-hour worship service on a Sunday morning followed by a sermon. That's not church. That is the celebration of the saints. Yes. Church is this interconnected support system where the body functions at its at its uh, optimal levels because everything is interconnected and looking out for one another. And if if we're not doing that as a church, then I don't think we're fulfilling the purpose for which God uh, ordained the church to exist. So it's always a play. It's a difficult thing to figure out how to make that happen and how to get that running on all cylinders. But that's what the church is supposed to be. And, and that's really what we want at New Life. We're not perfect at it, but that's what we want. And so one last thing. Um, by the time I kind of got involved in church, mm-hmm. people kind of stopped calling each other brother and sister and then sister so-and-so brother so-and-so and And then it kind of became like kind of like a joke not a Mm -hmm. joke but it was almost like a um caricature of like big evangelical culture in america (laughs) or whatever so but i'll be honest with you i'm sad that i missed it Mm -hmm. because i think whether we come up with a new word or not but a word that has that value that Mm -hmm. that um when we say at church hey brother dave Mm -hmm you know, sister Ariel, whatever, right. that it's not just, um, it's more, it, or, right. Yeah, it, yeah. it actually means something. It means you're part of the herd. Mm-hmm. And I wish we family. could- Family. And I wish we could get back to finding a way to communicate, not just to ourselves, but to the culture right. that, you know, we are, we're different because God has set us apart as different, that we are brothers and sisters. And it just makes me think about all this stuff that you talked about with Jonathan and David. Mm-hmm. They were, because we're all born again into a new family. Right. So we literally, mm-hmm. it's not a figure of speech. We literally are brothers and sisters. Right. And I just, just for me, I miss that. I think we should bring it back. Well, I think it's, you know, because it became cliche, it kind of lost its potency. But if uh, I even say, you know, when I'm talking to, when I'm praying at the beginning of a service, Lord, you know, mm-hmm. be with my brothers and sisters today. You know, we, we need to, we need to identify as the family that God made us to be. And I'll just I'll leave you with one last verse because this is so important towards sure. this connectivity. And we use it on Sunday. I just want to read it again. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift him up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep each other warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. And that's what the church needs. Right, and we know God himself is a relationship. Absolutely. He is a three-banded cord. A three-banded cord. So that is just, it is hardwired into our DNA. Mm. And that's why we need the church so badly. So I think that's it for this week. Please join us next week as we wrap up our series on the story of David. And I hope that this has been a blessing to you. I know it's been a blessing to Pastor and myself. Mm -hmm. So if you enjoyed your time with us, please remember to like, 
follow, subscribe, give us that five-star review. Um, if you didn't like it, we're not asking you to lie, but don't give us a one star <laughs> because we think that this uh, podcast can have some outreach and some uh, evangelistic opportunities. So please uh, just remember to do that for us. And we thank you and we'll see you next week. God bless. Matthew 28.